700 years before Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah predicted that he would not be the only one who died that day. Isaiah predicted, he prophesied that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. That Jesus would be included in a group of sinners. And sure enough, as you know, when Jesus died, there were at least three men who died on that hill. On the one side, there was a man who was, who was repentant. On that side, there was one who called out to Jesus in his final hour. There was on the other side, one who just continued to mock him, to revile him. They both had equal opportunity. They both were right next to Jesus, watching and, and, and hearing all that happened. And yet one responded so differently than the other. On top of Golgotha that day, there was the one who reviled, the one who repented, and the one who redeemed. I want us to think together about that experience as we continue to look at the seven last words, the last statements that Jesus made from the cross. And this morning as we do that, we're going to look at when he said that the one would be with me. If you have your copy of scripture, we're going to be in Luke 23. I invite your attention there. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23. As we hear Jesus speak to the one who repented. and He says to him, you and I are going to be together. It was an invitation. Come on over to my house and let's stay there forever. Luke chapter 23. Look with me as we begin the story again at verse 32. Backing up a little bit and we're overlap, overlap some of what we looked at last week. But we're in chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. It says, Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. 
And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time hearing the Savior speak each week as we lead up to Easter. And we're going to hear Him speak again this morning. But before we hear Him speak, in order to understand the power of His words, we need to first hear the sinner speak. And so I want us to listen again to the one who was dying next to Jesus and called out to Him in that final hour. I want us to hear again what he had to say because when we hear him, we find ourselves. This one is representative of all sinners who really trust in Jesus. And look at the process by which he did that and the the, the things he understood, the words that he said. Let's hear the sinner speak. And when we listen to him, we're going to notice the first thing is that he knew there was something beyond this life. You see what he said in, um, uh, let's see, where is that? Do you, uh, yeah, how about verse 40? He answered and rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God? Now, that question in itself tells us that he knew there was something beyond this life. If this life is all there was, then he and his buddy were almost done, and it's over. But as he hangs there dying, fighting for his last breath, he is still thinking, we better be in fear, we better be in respect, in awe, of God. You see, he knew there was something beyond this life. He said, don't you fear God? And not only that, but he also knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he himself was a sinner. And so he said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of God condemnation, we indeed justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Beloved, that's where it all begins. When it it first begins to kind of dawn on us, when the Holy Spirit has begun to awaken us and and we begin to wrap our minds around what it might mean to give our lives to Jesus, it starts with this reality that there is something beyond this life And I know that I am going to miss out on it because I'm a sinner. Understanding, recognizing, and confessing that we are a sinner is where the journey of faith begins. The Bible says that 
all of us have sinned, that every one of us has fallen short of God's glory, short of His purpose and His plan. Every one of us. Isaiah said it like we are sheep who've gone astray, every one to his own way. The only thing that made a difference between the guy who hung there and the guy who hung there is the guy who hung there told the truth about who he was. And that enabled him then to understand the truth about who Jesus was. He knew there was something beyond this life and he knew that he was indeed a sinner. And he also knew that Jesus wasn't. He knew that Jesus was innocent. You see, he says, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He recognized Jesus' innocence. You know why the scripture refers to him as the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God? Primarily, it's for two reasons. One, because in the Old Testament, the lamb was used as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So in order to be forgiven, there must be be a price that is paid. And in the Old Testament, often it was the lamb that was paid to, to, to pay that price, to make atonement, if you will for man's sin. But it couldn't just be any old lamb. It had to be the best lamb, the perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, Scripture said. Because God deserves the best. Now, if Jesus is going to become sin for all of us, He must first be without sin. He's the perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. And He comes as the innocent one. And this man says, we deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. And the next thing that the man knew was that he knew Jesus was God. He knew he was God. And so he says in our text, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He's speaking to one who is divine. He could have just said, you know, Jesus, I'm sorry that you're having to die our death. Here we go. We're dead. He says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. There's something more beyond this life, and I can tell you're the one in charge of that. He knew that Jesus was not just the son of a carpenter. He was God. And until we understand that reality, we cannot fully trust him. And until we fully trust him, we cannot fully be saved. He says, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. The kingdom belongs to the Lord. He knew something else as well. 
He also knew that Jesus was the Savior. He knew that Jesus was the Savior. And so he says, Jesus, remember me. Include me in what you're doing. Let me be a part of whatever's coming next. What he's saying is, save me from this experience. Let me be a part of the next part of what you're doing. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus was God. He knew that Jesus was the Savior. He says, remember me. But then he also knew that Jesus was king. He said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. When you come in your kingdom, let me be a part of that. When your kingdom is established, could I, could I just have a, a back row seat somewhere back yonder? Would, would you just let me sit in the same room and watch all the glorious things that you get to do and that you get to be a part of? Just don't forget me here on the hillside. Don't let this be all there is for me. Just, just remember me. Think about me. Don't leave me out. I wonder sometimes, and we don't, we don't have a whole lot of information about what this man knew before he got to this place. There's no reason for us to assume he ever met Jesus until this hour. But I think, I, I think that this man, since Luke went to the trouble to give us some of these details, I think that Luke, that, that this man who was dying on the cross, looks over and he sees Jesus on the cross. And right above Jesus' head is that little sign that they made. The king of the Jews. Now they meant it as mockery. Ha ha ha, here's your king. Look at him dying a, a dirty death. Ha ha, here's your king. We're humiliating him. He, he, he's been torn to shreds. He's bleeding in front of you. Thorns through his brow. Nails through his flesh. Is this really your king? They thought it was a mockery. But it's amazing when words speak truth, how God can use that truth to speak to the heart of one who is searching for truth. And the truth is, he was king of the Jews. I think this guy who's dying next to him looks over and he sees that reminder, here's the king of the Jews, and instead of using it to make fun of him, he says, king, would you remember me in your kingdom? Just, just let me be a part. Don't forget me. And then I think he knew one more thing. He knew somehow that Jesus would reign. It's fascinating to me. I've read this many, many times, thought about it for years and years and years, and it never occurred to me that he uses the verb come instead of go. See, I, I would say, Jesus, remember me when you go to your kingdom because you're fixing to die. And when you die, you're going to go to your kingdom. When you get up yonder, Remember me, 
But that's not the verb he used. He said, when you come in your kingdom. Now, does that mean that he had, had a, a, a great theological understanding of eschatology and the study of end times? I doubt it. But he knew that this king was going to reign. He knew that something big was going to happen when this king finally got into that time where he was going to be the king of kings, when he would reign over all. And so he says, when you finally come into your kingdom, let me be a part of it. We hear the sinner speak, and as we hear him speak, we hear these, these great statements of real faith, humility, repentance. And because he speaks in repentance and faith, we then can hear the Savior say, you're going to be with me. So we hear the Savior speak. I think it's interesting when the Savior spoke because Luke recorded for us that the people down, down below him were yelling at him, taunting him, making fun of him, and Jesus never said a word to them. The Jewish leaders mocked him, it says. The leaders mocked him. If you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself? And he never answered them. The Roman soldiers mocked him. Hey, you, king dude, here's some sour wine. What do you think of that? What are you going to do? Why don't you jump down here and wipe us out? And he never said a word. But when the broken sinner says, Jesus remember me, then the Savior speaks. It is at that moment that Jesus' attention is drawn to the one who calls on him. Did you know it works the same way today? We live in a crazy, crazy mixed up time, don't we? I mean floods, violence, earthquakes, riots, school shootings, church shootings. Imagine all that God's got to take care of and all the stuff that's going on all the time. And he's watching over all this and he's managing stuff and he's managing people. But I want you to know that just like what happened on Calvary that day, the minute... A broken sinner says, Jesus, help me. His attention is drawn to those words and to that heart. Jesus, by now, has been stripped naked. We, for our own comfort, put a little loincloth on him when we paint his picture. He is stripped naked in front of the crowd. Beaten so badly, the Bible says you could not recognize him. And as he pushes on the nails in his ankles to be able to raise up to fill his lungs so that he can breathe again, 
he hears someone over here say, would you remember me? And in the midst of his own personal pain and suffering, he speaks. He speaks to the one who is repenting. It just blows my mind that the first two words from the cross are not, I'm hurting. They're not, how dare you. The first two words from the cross are, Father, forgive them, and you're going to be with me in heaven. That tells us what kind of Savior we serve. We hear him speak, and what did he say? He said, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Understand what he told that thief. The thief knew there was something beyond this life. He knew that there was a kingdom coming. He knew that Jesus was in charge of all of that. He said, would you just remember me? Let me be a part of it. And he says, when you come in your kingdom, don't forget me. And Jesus said, dude, we're not going to wait till when. Today is the day, baby. Today you will be with me in paradise. No soul sleep. No purgatory. I'm sorry. Today, you'll be with me. You see, that thief went from the cross on Golgotha to the home prepared for him in heaven. And when the believer, that one who is truly changed by Jesus Christ, When the believer closes his or her eyes in this world, they are opened anew in glory. The last breath here is the first breath there. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This day, today, you will be with me in paradise. But not only did he say today, do you hear him? He said today you will be with me. Me in paradise. You're going to be with me. What did the thief ask for? Would you remember me? Jesus said, I'm not only going to remember you, you're going to be with me. Now that's powerful to know that we can be with him for all eternity. Why? Because you go all the way back to the first sin. All the way back to the beginning, God had created Adam. God's walking with Adam through the garden. We're hanging out every day. They're friends. They're talking. Face-to-face conversation. It's not good that man should be alone. He creates Eve. Adam and Eve now, hanging out with Jesus, talking or with God, talking face-to-face, walking through the garden, beautiful garden. And they're spending time there. And then all of a sudden, Eve decides to disobey God. Adam decides to disobey God. And because of their disobedience, they are cast out of the garden. No longer does man have that one-on-one, face-to-face interaction with God. That's been messed up. But look at what Jesus says. Not only are you going to be in heaven, you're going to be with me. See, that's what being redeemed 
is all about. It means that this is how we are. We are enemies of God because of our sin. But He redeems us, which means to put back together, which means to restore. The whole point of salvation is redemption, is restoring fellowship between man and God. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the whole point of salvation. He forgives us of sin and He redeems us into a relationship with Him. And the promise is we not only experience that by faith here, we get to experience it by sight there. We get to see Him, be with Him. Again, walking face to face every day. He says, this day you're going to be with me. No suffering in heaven. No pain in heaven. Sweet reunions in heaven. We get to see folks who've gone before us. We get to see them again, to be with them again. Sweet reunions in heaven. Beauty in heaven. Scripture knows that we can't understand something as beautiful as heaven, so it, it kind of lowers the standards a little bit and uses the prettiest stuff we can think of, like streets of gold and gates of pearl. Beautiful heaven. But you know what makes heaven heaven? As Brother Mike reminded us so powerfully in Brother Jack's memorial service the other day, what makes heaven heaven is it's not the beauty. It's not even the reunion. It's not even the absence of pain and suffering. It is being with Jesus face to face. He says, today you're going to be with me in that special place called paradise. That word paradise means beautiful garden. Isn't it great that it started? It all started in a garden, in a beautiful garden. Man messed that up. So the Redeemer now redeems that garden experience and says, now you're going to be with me in a beautiful garden in paradise. We've heard the sinner speak. We've heard the Savior speak. The last few seconds of my time together, let's hear the miracle of grace. Because when you hear the sinner and then you hear the Savior you recognize they are singing the song of grace. That thief couldn't do anything for himself. He was stuck there. He couldn't use his hands or his feet. He couldn't serve the Lord. He couldn't earn what he was asking for. There's no way he could even understand all that was happening on his own. He looks over. He sees a humiliated, beaten man that looked nothing like a, a Messiah, nothing like a Savior. No reason to believe that Jesus had the power to save himself or anyone else. And yet he believed. Why? It's called a miracle of grace. Because God, through the Holy Spirit, awakened him. Touched him. Gave him that amazing grace that allowed him to believe. Remember, too, this happened, hour, this happened before the hours of darkness or before the veil was torn or before the earthquake or before the centurion's confession, you're the Son of God. This happened before all of that stuff. So 
None of that stuff that proved Jesus was who he said he was had happened yet. This man just acted on faith, and that faith came because God showed him grace enough to give him that faith. That is the miracle of of grace. He recognized his sin. He repented. He called out to Jesus because of grace. And friends, it still happens that way. You will never be good enough to be a Christian. You'll never be good enough to go to heaven. I don't care how much your grandma loves you, she cannot pray you into heaven. I don't care how hard you work, I don't care how many times you come to church, I don't care how many times you read the Bible, none of that gets you there. There's only one way to get to heaven, and that is when you accept the free gift of grace. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gives you His grace as a gift, and by faith you say, thank you, I needed that. And you receive that grace and believe because of what he's done. Three men hung on the crosses that day. There were two criminals and Christ. There were two sinners and a Savior. Two rebels and a Redeemer. Jesus was the man in the middle. A thief on either side. They had equal opportunity, equal access to the Savior. One chose to reject Him, the other chose to trust Him. One made fun of Him, the other had faith in Him. One scoffed in mockery, the other cried out for mercy. One left this life without Jesus, the other left this life with Him. One is spending eternity in hell, that, is, that, that hell is existence without Christ. The other is spending eternity in glory. That experience in glory is real life with Christ. So the question is, which side would you be on? Father, we thank you for giving us the grace that enables us to believe, to understand, that enables us to trust Lord, we thank you for that old rugged cross. The cross on which Jesus died. That we might have life. Father, as we see him there again and hear him speak. Help us each to to make sure that he could say to us. You'll be with me in paradise. Lord, we pray that you would awaken our hearts and open our minds that we can be certain that we've trusted in you personally, powerfully, permanently. We ask that you do that work even in this moment in Jesus' name.